All right, thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Gaucho Amigos. I'm Alex. Today, my guest is Jack Hamilton. He's both a writer and professor. He teaches media studies at the University of Virginia. And uh, earlier this year, Jack wrote a piece for The Atlantic titled Surrender to Steely Dan, How the Insufferably Perfectionist Duo Captured the Hearts of a New Generation of Listeners. Uh, obviously, much of that piece was uh, of relevance to what we talk about on this podcast. You know, Jack talked a little bit about his own history as a Steely Dan fan in that piece. So that's uh, what inspired me to invite him on the show. Uh, Jack also wrote a music book that came out back in 2016 uh, called Just Around Midnight, Rock and Roll and the Racial Imagination. Uh, I read that. I thought it was great. So, yeah, without further ado, this is my conversation with Jack Hamilton. Enjoy. So I actually, I think like maybe I'm sure I'm not the only person like really first encountered Steely Dan through hip hop. Um, I was a huge hip hop fan um, from a from a young age, still am. Uh, but yeah, it was it was through samples. So I mean, like one of the earliest hip hop albums that made a huge impression on me was uh, Three Feet High and Rising, the De La Soul record. Um, and my favorite, probably my favorite song on that record was I Know, um, which I had known for years uh, prior to it must have been like kind of, I would guess I was probably 18 or 19 before I learned that that it was based on a sample of Peg. Um, and I knew of Steely Dan through like, you know, listening to classic rock radio occasionally. I grew up in the Boston area and you would hear like, you know, um, uh, Do It Again and Ricky Don't Lose That Number and Reeling in the Years on the radio. It wasn't yeah, it was during a weird time for Steely Dan. You know, the 90s, I think, were really like they were sort of even though they were touring again, like they were kind of like in the cultural wilderness. <laughs> they really were not like, you know, it was my I kind of came into musical consciousness at this moment when what was happening in rock was like the transition from hair, glam metal to grunge. And like both of those forms like are pretty devoid of Steely Dan influence, at least like in the in the way that people tend to think of them. Um and so, yeah, so it was this time when, like, you just didn't really hear that much about Steely Dan other than, uh, you know, I think a lot of the the er my early exposure to people talking about Steely Dan was in kind of a disparaging way. The whole Steely Dan ethos was seen as kind of, I think, counter to what a lot of people thought of how people were kind of mythologizing grunge and and kind of musical expression in the in the 90s. Um, so, yeah, but it was really uh was actually when I was probably like in my early 20s, I was dating someone who had an LP of Steely Dan's greatest hits. Um, and that I think she had like gotten she had like taken from her parents or something. <laughs> and, and I just remember like sitting there around her apartment and like putting it on. And I was like, damn, this is like pretty good. Uh, <laughs> and just kind of listening to it over and over. And then it's funny, like <laughs> maybe I should say this, get arrested. But like this was kind of in the the uh the golden age of torrenting um so i went on a torrent site like uh i can't remember which one it was but it, and i did i just torrented steely dan's entire discography <laughs> that uh you know so at the push of a button you know within a few minutes i was like i had all the steely dan out like all of the 70s studio albums um and yeah then just sort of started making my way through those and that was really so that probably would have been like the early 2000s was when um my interest in them yeah, really, really took off. And they've certainly been been one of my favorite bands since. 
Yeah, I, I remember that kind of 90s time where they were just like, you would not say you like them. Totally. Like you just wouldn't say yeah. it. You wouldn't, you wouldn't admit it. Like, even though they were in these hip hop songs that you mentioned, mm -hmm. um, it was just embarrassing to say that you like Steely Dan. It was, it was, Fleetwood Mac was kind of also in that. And totally. Maybe the Grateful Dead, unless you yourself were a big deadhead, like anything outside of that sort of inner circle was, um, same thing so yeah and i think it was just like the, the slickness and the, the sort of jazz fusion adjacent yeah. of it where it was sort of i mean people used to call it elevator music um, mm -hmm. because if you because but, but here's the thing like now like elevator music doesn't really sound like like the music that's actually played in elevators now isn't really sound like steely dan anymore so maybe something like we've gone through some sort of you know clearing of uh that that era uh, and now Steely Dan is, is weirdly back in vogue. Um, yeah, totally. I mean, I was thinking, I was having a conversation with someone about this, like yeah. when I was writing that Atlantic piece and it's like, it's interesting that like slick as a pejorative, you know, to like, you know, to, to sort of speak negatively as music being of music being slick, isn't something that I think like really holds much purchase for like younger audiences. I think that that idea of like music being slick as it being a negative thing, or even just being something that people kind of understand what it means, maybe is like less of a thing than it was for, I mean, certainly, you know, Steely Dan was obviously definitely accused of that by people while they were in their heyday. Um, and then it was certainly stuck to them in the nineties, but like, yeah, I don't know. Like, I guess I, I, I can't remember the last time I heard like a contemporary musician be talked about in terms of being like slick versus unslick. Maybe I'm just like not in the right conversations anymore, but it's, yeah, it, it, it is interesting the way that those things have kind of changed. What, what made the switch for you when you were like, okay, I'm going to get their whole discography. I'm going to, you know, when you're hearing the greatest hits, like this is really good. What about it? Like, yeah. Um, so, I mean, I have a, I'm a musician myself, like I'm a piano player, keyboard player. Um, and I just really, I've always been kind of drawn to music that's like really technically good. <laughs> like, it's just like, I, I really appreciate sort of technique and, and, and sort of form, you know, like this idea that like, and it was just like, I was really drawn to like how, how good the playing was, you know, and it, this was kind of before I knew the, like, like really get, knew a lot of detail about who was playing on the records and stuff like that. But yeah. And I mean, another thing too, is that I've always been like a really big R and B fan. That was sort of like my like sixties and seventies R and B or like, I got like super into that music when I was in high school. Um, like Stevie wonder is like probably my all time favorite musician. Um, and one thing that I thought was really cool about Steely Dan was that like they in the seventies, are connecting with corners of R&B that like a lot of other rock bands in that period really weren't, you know, like, it's like, yeah. I kind of think it's interesting. Cause like Steely Dan, yeah. Like, you know, they were classified as a rock band and, you know, they're certainly like played on classic rock radio and were played on rock radio in the seventies, but it's like what they're doing musically to me is like much more along the lines of, of say someone like Stevie wonder, um, than it is with like Led Zeppelin or Aerosmith or something like that, you know, other sort of 70s rock, um, just in terms of, you know, even just as a matter of like who's playing on their records, you know, you think about like Asia's got like Chuck Rainey and Bernard Purdy playing on it. And it's like all these like, you know, heavy uh, sort of, yeah, you know, you mentioned earlier sort of fusion. Um, yeah, it's it sort of, it, to me, it's more in that vein of like, 
kind of fusion adjacent R&B of the of the late 70s. Um, uh, the, the like, you know, Stevie Wonder and like Earth, Wind and Fire and Donny Hathaway, people like that. And then later, you know, I would say maybe like Prince, um, like like guys who just have like serious chops yeah. <laughs> and like, you know, and are really like getting up to like pretty uh, sophisticated harmonic and, and rhythmic ideas. Um, and that's to me is like Steely Dan is really squarely along those lines. It's just like they didn't get classified that way in the 70s, basically, because well, because because Fagan and Becker were white, I think. <laughs> but, you know, there were actually like Hey 19 actually did um, chart on the Billboard R&B charts. And I think that that's one of the reasons oh. why uh, Steely Dan has been sampled so much is that there's mm -hmm. a lot of hip hop musicians who grew up in households that listen to Steely Dan. I mean, that's certainly um, and yeah. And I think in the 90s, it's interesting because you're like, who did um who is the sort of audience that thought of Steely Dan as uncool? It was usually like 90s rock fans, whereas it's like, I think 90s hip hop artists didn't really, <laughs> like that wasn't really something where like cool versus uncool wasn't really something they were concerned with. It was like, oh, this is, you know, this is a great record that would sound awesome if I, you know, <laughs> looped it. Uh, so you get, yeah, like samples like Peg and, and Black Cow and um, yeah. And a, a weird byproduct of their uncoolness was that you could cop a uh, vinyl of like any Steely Dan record for like a buck or two for like a totally. while, like especially in the nineties and like into the two thousands. Like I remember even when I started collecting vinyl, um, like you'd see Asia and Gaucho in the dollar bin, you know, which is yeah. crazy to think about because first of all, they're just like such amazing classic albums. You would think those, no matter how many copies are made, that those would go for like at least, you know, $25, $30. And now they do. Now they do. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, for like crate digger culture, you know, for hip hop culture, obviously that's like, you know, you go to a record yeah. store, like you would go to a record store in like the late nineties, early two thousands, you would like first thing you would see is a copy of Asia, you know? So totally, totally. It makes yeah. perfect sense that that was one that, um, that got sampled, you know, that songs on that album got sampled so much. So mm -hmm. yeah, for sure. New York to the heart, but got love for all. Lie, die in the fire where I learn the ball. Uptown is the place where I lay my dome. On the streets of the Bronx where my family roam. Oh, damn it, we home. Peter got a nine millimeter. Player haters can feel the flame for my heater. I never really liked to play a fool like that. But I love I, like, it's funny, like, I don't remember ever hearing Kid Charlemagne um, on the radio as a kid. Like, I think the first time I heard that song, I was like in my, in my early 20s. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting the stuff that made it onto the rate. And then it's what the weirdest one to me is <laughs> like Ricky Don't Lose That Number, which is like I think big Steely Dan's biggest hit, like chart-wise. Yeah. Um, and definitely a song that was also all over the radio. And that's another one that it's like, I mean, to be honest, like, I mean, I like that song. It is so far from my favorite Steely Dan song. Um, and I don't understand why that became the biggest hit they ever had. <laughs> like, it's a great song, certainly, but it's like, you know, this it's kind of strange, you know, from the fact that it's like, <laughs> opens by biting, you know, song for my father. <laughs> and it's like, just sort of a, uh, it's a, it's a weird song to be their biggest hit. There's certainly like, uh, like, yeah, I mean, like, I think most people would agree that like, Peg, or like, at least most deal, like Peg to me is like a perfect pop song. Yeah. Like, it's like, it is, <laughs> like it's shocking to me that Peg did not hit number. One. I mean, I think Peg peaked in like the twenties or something like that, which is 
kind of crazy because I'm like, man, this is the most like radio friendly, <laughs> <laughs> like just like infectious. Like, yeah, yeah, but it's it's interesting that like that. And obviously Peg goes on to have like a big afterlife, I think, in part because of the De La Soul sample and things like that. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's such a strange uh yeah the way that they they the the aspects of steely dan that have like persisted through the, the history of pop culture kind of since then are interesting to me um yeah i don't know <laughs> yeah i mean i hear i feel like the two most popular steely dan songs among like people who like steely dan specifically are usually like deacon blues and peck yeah like yeah. those are kind of the two biggest not the hits mm -hmm. um with ricky i think that um I think it's just the refrain of Ricky, don't lose that number. There's something about that the yeah. way, that line and the way he sings it. That's just the hook of totally. that, I think, yeah. connected with people. Um, and I also think the reason it actually did get classic rock radio play, even though it you know uses a Horace Silver uh, mm -hmm. piano yeah. line, which is, which is interesting, um, is because of the guitar solo. Because mm -hmm. I feel like classic rock was very kind of guitar solo centric where... Totally. Like yeah. when they had to pick the three or four songs from a classic rock band to play, they would usually go for the ones with like the big solo. So. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. The guitar point is a really good one. Like that. And that's something else that I think, you know, as a keyboard player, like drew me to Steely Dan initially is that it's, they're interesting. They're an interesting band in that so much of their music is piano focused. Like it's like, there's like the, that, you know, Fagan's keyboard playing is a really central part to you know what's happening on a lot of those records and it's like you can tell too that it's sort of like it's a key to the way the compositions are being uh created essentially like in, in a way that like steely dan doesn't revolve around guitar riffs to the degree that a lot of other um you, you know i think like the, the the guitar riff like really becomes sort of the st the standard songwriting tool of a lot of rock artists in the yeah. 70s and that it's not the case with steely there's very few steely dan i mean there's certainly amazing guitar playing on steely dan records and there's amazing solos and there are amazing like little lines and stuff like yeah. that but there aren't that many songs reeling in the years would be an exception you know, yeah. to this of a song that is very like there's a there's a riff you know there's like an electric guitar that's right <laughs> out front that's playing right. something and you're like yeah, which again, you know, thinking about classic rock audiences, it's like right away, it's like that announces itself as like electric guitar, like you're hearing a rock song. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in terms of like how the songs were constructed, it was probably more around the piano, especially yeah. kind of some of the weird, uh, like, you know, chordal structures that their songs get into. But yeah, there's still plenty for guitar heads to like, oh, for know, sure. Yeah, because yeah. there's so much there's so many amazing guitarists play on uh, on all the albums. And there's a lot of great like individual moments and, and licks and everything. So oh, yeah. for sure. Yeah. 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 They really hit on a sweet spot for, for both, both sides. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, would you definitely consider them a rock band necessarily? Or do you think like, cause it, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, these classifications yeah. get a little wonky, but, and I know your book uh, just around midnight kind of talks about that. I mean, yeah, I mean, so like the book in the book, like one of the real one of the things I really tried to get at in the book was that like, you know, R&B and rock music come from like pretty much exactly the same place, yeah. <laughs> you know, and like in the in the early part of the 60s, like a lot of what is, you know, what is 
being defined as R and B is also being defined as rock and roll. Like they're they're almost indistinguishable. Like I mean, something that always strikes out, jumps out to me is like in like 1965 there was a cover of the the of Time magazine, and the title was like "Rock and Roll Everybody's Turned On." And there's like it's and they're like pictures of like three groups. I think it was like the Beatles, the Beach Boys, and the Supremes. Mm. And so it's like oh, so the Supremes like in 1965 were considered rock and roll music um which like i would still i think is like still accurate it's just that like <laughs> the way that people get the way that it gets remembered sort of retrospectively is like the supremes are r&b and the beatles are rock and roll and there's this sort of like division even though i don't think either of those groups at that time saw very much difference between like what they were doing and certainly you know thinking of, yeah you know bands like the beatles and the stones are like so heavily versed in black american pop music yeah. um and then yeah like so i like something that i think drew all did draw me to steely dan was like oh they're like really engaging with those musical traditions not just r&b but also like very much jazz too um to a degree in the 70s that like a lot of other white rock bands weren't really doing you know you had like kind of like corners of prog that are that are that are doing that but it wasn't Steely Dan are so kind of unique, you know, in a, in a lot of ways, because they're not Prague either, I wouldn't say. Um, so, yeah, so I, I don't know, like, I guess I think that there are, you know, to the to the degree that like these labels have any kind of like salience to them. Like, yeah, like I, I'd say Steely Dan is a rock band, but I would also say that they're an R&B band. Like, it's yeah. like I think that they can be they can be both at once. Um I always and... thought Black Cows reminded me a lot of a Supreme song, especially the um, the chorus, the line, mm -hmm. uh, I can't cry anymore while you run around. Totally. It's like totally. I could I could so hear Diana Ross sing that line and like even the the melody, too. But yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And it's like there's just yeah, there's really that type of um, yeah. And like Motown too about Motown as like similar to you know like Motown was just this like laboratory for like perfectionism you know and in, 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 in sort of songwriting in the musicianship just like those records like the way they sound are just is just so incredible and it's like Steely Dan is so rooted in that you know like that kind of like not to say Mo just Motown specifically but like that idea of like we're just gonna make these like incredible records you know like it's like right. we're gonna just make these um these these little masterpieces these little like jewels uh, of and and use the studio to kind of create these things um yeah i don't know there's something that, that to me is like very appealing like i i feel like steely dan often gets um gets gets sort of put down as being cold and being like sort of you know this like they're so uh their attention to detail like leaves i think some people think of it as, yeah it's kind of cold and abstracted aloof or whatever but to me i don't know like the 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 how much you have to care about music to spend that much time on it <laughs> and like that much attention to craft and things like that is just like i don't know to me it's like very there's a there's a real warmth to it you know because you can just tell how much those guys love what they do and like how much <laughs> Um, how much they're putting into it, you know, like, it's just like, that's, that's cool. I don't know. <laughs> I can't cry anymore. You run around. You run around. Break away. Just when it seems so clear that it's all 
this idea that like the, the only way to be a real rock band is to be like you know four or five pieces and it's like you know a lineup and like everyone just it's like you got the same drummer the same bass player like you know that model that i think people think you know that caused people some people in the 70s to think that steely dan were like bullshit or fake or whatever like that's a pretty that's, that's like a pretty recent concept you know like i think yeah. that concept of a rock band really emerges with the beatles that it's like because people knew how, who all four members were you yeah. know like it's like even in the 50s it's like i mean elvis certainly had like a band um you know scotty moore and stuff but like uh DJ Fontana, I guess, was the drummer. Um, okay. But like Elvis fans didn't give a shit who played on his record. <laughs> you know, yeah. like it's like they didn't know who those people were. Like it's really with John Paul, George and Ringo that that becomes this thing of like, oh, it would like it just, you know, if the Beatles had fired Ringo in 1966 or, or fired George or something, people would have flipped out, you know, rightly <laughs> so. Like it's like they were like that wasn't. Yeah, it's like and, you know, well, their celebrity transcended the music. at that point. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And like and, you know, I think that it's like you know, if John Lennon had left the Beatles, like, and Paul McCartney had tried to continue them or vice versa, people would have felt like that's not really the Beatles, um, which is all like well and good, but like not, not all music has to be that way, you know? And it's like, and so with Steely Dan, yeah, I mean, there is something just kind of different to the approach that they took that again, that is actually a lot closer to um, the way R&B music was happening at the time, you know, like it's like someone like Stevie Wonder to come back to it certainly had like a core band of people that played on most of his stuff, not all of it. But it's like you look at the credits to Steve, Stevie Wonder records when he's not playing every instrument himself, I should clarify. <laughs> but yeah. it's like, you know, there's like there it is like it really is more of a like who would be best for this track kind of thing. You know, who do I who do I want to bring in, um, you know, like. Herbie Hancock plays on as on songs in the key of life. And it's like, great, but it's like, yeah. you know, it's uh, he's brought in to, to, to do it. Um, yeah. And I think Steely Dan operated in a similar way. Um, yeah. Bringing in these incredible players. And I think, yeah, that there's a, a way that some people see it as like mercenary and sort of bloodless or whatever. But I, I, I find it kind of the opposite because like you're saying, it, it, it speaks to, like who would be right for this part, you know? And sometimes it would take, you know, as the story about and like a lot of the stuff on Asia, like, I mean, I think the peg, peg it was like, they brought in like seven different guitar players. <laughs> to it might've been more than that. Yeah. yeah, I think it might've been more. Um, but yeah, you know, and this idea that like it had to be perfect. They knew what they wanted, but like, you know, you can't, yeah, like, you know what you want, but like, you need to put someone, you need to like, you have an idea in your mind and it's about like bringing in the musician who's going to nail the thing that you have in your mind. Um, and that's tricky, but it's also yeah. like, you know, it's, um, it's told, I think it's a totally valid way to, to go about making music. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I remember like um I must have been I guess what what 
Two Against Nature was what, 2000, I think? Yeah, um, yeah 2000. Yeah, I remember those Grammys so well because it was like all the protesting against Eminem. <laughs> um, and it was like this crazy year where it was like, I think Papadimus writes about it in the um, yeah. Quantum Criminals, but it was like Radiohead, Eminem, uh, Beck, I think was up. Like it was like a bunch of artists who were like, we really seminally associate with like that time period. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was Midnight Vultures, Kid A and um, the, the Slim Shady LP. Right. The, right. And yeah. the Paul Simon record. Those are the oh, interesting. Four. Yeah. <laughs> Paul Simon. <wow>. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's like, yeah, it was so weird that it was like, cause they, I mean, I, I, at least as I remember in the run up to it, this was like during it, I don't really pay any attention to the Grammys anymore, but at <laughs> that point I, I, I think I did. Cause I remember it, but it was like, yeah, it was really like Eminem was seen as like the prohibitive favorite to win until uh, until there was like this sort of protest against the homophobia and on that record. And um, and then it, it was just so it was such a left turn to go to two against nature. <laughs> no one expected that. I, I actually it's weird because I I don't really care about the Grammys in general. And but I do feel like at that time, people were generally more interested in like the Grammys and like the album yeah. of the year, I felt like carried more kind of significance or like cultural significance yeah. than it does now. Yeah. I remember that was one of the only times I watched the Grammys live. And I remember just being like completely like befuddled that they gave the award. Cause it seemed like it was going to be like something new and trendier this year, like Becker Radiohead or something, or even Eminem. So. Yeah. yeah. And it was also like, you know, uh, I mean, I think with like the Grammys, it's like, uh, I, I mean, the Grammys usually re reward things that have sold a ton. <laughs> like that tends to be like it's like, mm -hmm. um, you know, I often like tell people like who are like the Grammys. It's like it's like if the Oscars were like the only way to qualify for the Oscars was it like your your, your movie was like a top 10 blockbuster or something <laughs> like that. Yeah. Like, I mean, not not like that's not entirely true, but it's it, it often is kind of de facto true, you know, that it's like um not that they'll like always give it to the album that sells the most copies necessarily, but it's like, usually it's like the stuff that's in the running is, um, are really big hits because it's like, they want to reward albums that like, you know, had like a really, uh, I don't know, big impact on the industry. I guess that's like maybe one way it's, it, it tends to be a more industry. I mean, there's always outliers like that weird year yeah. that like that Herbie Hancock record won a few, you know, whenever that was the Joni Mitchell tribute right. thing. Um, but yeah, usually, I mean, I remember a few years ago when like Adele, or I guess this was more than a few years ago when like Adele beat Beyonce and people were really mad about it. And like, I mean, Beyonce made a better record than Adele, like she, she probably should have won, but it was like, that was when Adele was like selling like insane, like she had, she had released her album only on CD, uh, and had managed <laughs> to sell like 3 million CDs in wow. a week. Uh, which like no one thought it was ever going to happen anymore. Right. <laughs> and crazy. I was like, that's when she wrapped up the Grammy, you know, like, it's like, that's yeah. it. Cause that's what like all those people want, like people out buying CDs. Um, so yeah, that was, that was also weird again about two against nature was that that album was not like a commercial. That wasn't a big commercial hit at all. Um, I know, can't remember any of those songs being on the radio. No. Yeah, no, absolutely like, I don't not. ever. And none of them are like in the greater like consciousness. Like obviously other Steely Dan songs are, you know, a lot mm -hmm. of 
can't buy a thrill in Asia, but like, yeah, what's the biggest song I'm doing against nature? I probably couldn't make maybe Cousin Dupree. Like, I don't even know. Yeah, totally. No, it was not like it wasn't some big, you know, like, um, you know, I I, that was in the same period where like Dylan, Bob Dylan was having like, Mm -hmm. you know, a big career renaissance with like, you know, Time Out of Mind and Love and Theft and stuff. And like, I definitely remember that being like receiving a huge amount of attention and like yeah. two against nature did not receive that kind of attention at all. They've never been like anywhere near yeah. Dylan's level. No. Yeah. Of, you know, yeah. Just broader recognition. I mean, they obviously have a kind of rabid fan base and um, people know the, the hits, but they're not, yeah. you know, they're not like Donald Fagan. Isn't like a nationally known person really. So. No. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, he's kind of become a cult figure among like you know, a certain type of uh you know internet or twitter person but um yeah speaking of which are, are you kind of surprised to see this resurgence i mean in popularity yeah so it's like so you know um i'm a college professor so i i spend a lot of i talk to my students about music a lot um and something that i've like noticed recently i mean not even recently it's like you know the last however long 10 years um it's like with this, like in the streaming era where um, uh, like there's so much music kind of available, you know, and you can just like you, you can just find things. Um, and that's the way that a lot of people, younger people sort of discover music. Um, it's kind of like there's bad things about it, I think, which is like, you know, that like there's a lot of history that gets like that gets kind of erased and and there's, there's all pro- sort of problems with streaming platforms. But like, yeah. um Sometimes but it lacks context I, a little bit. Exactly. Yeah. But I think yeah. that, that one, sometimes like a plus side of that is that you can come to music without any of the like hangups that like, mm-hmm. you know, um, w- like where, yeah, that it's like you're you're sometimes lacking the context can be like, I think, liberatory for people because you can just be like, I like the way that this sounds, you know, like it's like I just like this. Um, and so I'll have students who will be Steely Dan fans. Or, or like at least will like Steely Dan's music, um, but won't know very much about them. And they certainly won't know like that, like all of the, you know, that like, you know, in the 70s, there were like half of rock fans like hated them <laughs> or like whatever, you know, or like that they went through this. They've gone through periods of being like really uncool. It's it's uh, it's actually funny. Like you brought up Fleetwood Mac earlier. It's the same way. Like it's yeah. like like my students are really into Fleetwood Mac, like and like listen to rumors, like probably and, and like stuff from that era a lot. Yeah, um, you can and... hear their influence even like totally. um, what's that? Ba- uh, Haim? Is it Haim? Or yeah, Haim? yeah. Like Haim. There's such a huge uh, Fleetwood yeah. Mac influence and they're like a huge band. So totally. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and other artists too. I, I hear it. So. Yeah. And so like, I think that, yeah, I think that I, I think part of it is that, yeah, Steely Dan's become kind of cool again <laughs> because like, yeah, there is a way that their, their music is really, um, you know, really endures. Like it's, it's not, I think, I don't think Steely Dan's music um, because it's so distinctive like has aged poorly in the way that like sometimes you know there's a, <laughs> there's a lot of music from the past that sound that's that can sound old yeah <laughs> um and theirs doesn't i think um and yeah and i think also like it's just that they're not as like charged a subject as they were for for such a long period of time like i remember reading like the um 
uh, reading the Rolling Stones review of Asia when I was working on that Atlantic piece. <laughs> it's so like they, their review from 77 because it's like it's so funny because it it's like it's a positive review. First of all, it's like a glowing yeah. review, but it opens with it's, it's like some disclaimer that's like it's like if you don't like Steely Dan, like boy you're gonna fucking hate this record <laughs> <laughs> and i think this is like such a strange i mean that's not really what it says but it, but it basically says that it's like and it's like i'm like that's such a weird way to open an album review you know like it's like it's like the writers sitting there being like oh my god there's gonna be all of these rock fans we're gonna write into rolling stone so angry that we gave <laughs> record like you know, a song like peg or a song like my old school or something like you can put that on at a party and it's just like, it's like <laughs> people will like dance to it you know it's like uh, people aren't thinking about like the lore of donald totally and Walter, you yeah know, no, dragged no. off to prison while they were students at bard when you put on right exactly, school at a party. exactly. <laughs> yeah it's funny i actually was like I, I, <laughs> about like man probably t- over 10 years ago at this point i was like i visited bard campus <laughs> um and i knew yeah. that steely dan had, had, had met at bard and stuff but for some reason, like, I don't think I ever knew that my old school was about Bard because I didn't know. Like, I was like, what? If, like, I was like, I, you know, and I'd heard the the lyrics about Annandale like a zillion times and I right. just never put it together. And I was like, I remember getting there and I was like, oh, Annandale. And oh, like <laughs> that's what it is. Um, so, yeah, but it's but, you know, it's just such a. But yeah, that's one that's like um, that that song is full of like so many references that like you wouldn't really get unless you were like super plugged into <laughs> in many ways, like bard specific lore. Like, you know, like it's like, like who would have known? And I don't think a lot of people in like 73 or 74 would have known that like G Gordon Liddy was like, had some involvement <laughs> with like, you know, like it's like <laughs> Daddy G was G Gordon. Yeah. Liddy. Yeah. Yeah. It was like the local prosecutor. Right. Like it was like some sort organized of the, trivia. the sting or whatever. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and then that's still like the closer at every Steely Dan show, and like all the boomers get up and like start clapping. I don't think they have yeah. any clue what. Like, <laughs> oh, totally. Yeah, the, like the historical background behind it is. <laughs> there was this uh, this funny thing that I I saw where Fagan actually went back to Bard in the eighties, and mm-hmm. um, he got some like comm- like award and like all all was forgiven. Like he you know he put the <laughs> put the grudge behind him, but. Um, <laughs> uh like the, the i have like a uh on my computer i have saved like the newspaper clipping of like bard college like newspaper and it's like fagan comes back to his old school and like a big picture of donald <laughs> like i'm i'm That's seriously awesome. considering like printing it out and hanging it up on my like in my office but yeah bard has like a real interest i have a i have a really good friend who teaches there um and um actually two friends who teach there now yeah. uh but like yeah they have an interesting like musical history because like oh um, one of the Beastie Boys, I think like MCA went there for like a semester and then dropped out. I think it was MCA. Yeah. Um, uh, so it's like this really interesting kind of like eclectic uh, people that and obviously like Chevy Chase was at Bard with Billy <laughs> Dan and I think was in played drums with them for uh, briefly. <laughs> they did. Yeah, <laughs> anyway. well, they um yeah, I mean, this gets mixed. People say, oh, Chevy Chase was in Steely Dan, which is not quite true. But yeah, right. when Donald and Walter were at Bard, I think a couple 
parties, you know, they put together some yeah. band and Chevy Chase drums. So yeah, yeah, um, which is funny. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I always think of Bard as like a, a school for like smart slackers. Yeah, because for sure. um, I had a friend growing up who like he was the kind of kid who like he read the Communist Manifesto in second grade and understood <laughs> all of it and like, could, but then like got C's in school. Like he was one of those <laughs> kind of kids. Like and like smoked weed and stuff but then he ended up going to bard so i've always just made that association so then when i was like digging into the history of steely dan and knowing what donald and walter looked like and what their music sounded like it, it all made a lot of sense to me so. yeah yeah for sure Yeah, I mean, I think in a lot of ways, the things that make Steely Dan um, so interesting to listen to and like what appeal, a lot of the things that like appeal to me about them do make them kind of difficult to, they, they resist a lot of the like, you know, I think like the two modes of, like the two most kind of cliched forms of rock writing um, or like two, two of the, the most tried and true ways into like writing, covering rock bands is like one is like treat the songs as if they're like basically autobiographical, you know, so it's like right. like the idea that like, you know, the song offers like a window into the soul of an artist, you know, um, this is I mean, still people write about a lot of pop music right. and then um, also it's sort of like turning bands into like these sort of competing galaxies of personalities, you know, like, so it's like these, you know, like you've got like, you know, John versus Paul or like Keith versus Mick or whatever, yeah. you know, the to some degree, these like rivalries I think are real, but they're also like a very convenient way to like, you know, it's like, what's the first thing that like, everyone knows about rumors it's like oh that they were all like there, <laughs> you know and like yeah. we're so mad at each other and stuff um which is like a cool story but like doesn't actually tell you very much about like the the actual music and like um that's i think steely dan like resists both those things because of the fact that they like really never write about themselves like at least directly um that's something that like i actually you know in the in quantum criminals um Papadimus writes about it. he's like there's very like even like the pronoun I like doesn't appear very often in Steely Dan songs. Like there's so much about like these sort of characters yeah. um, and like other people. Uh, and then also, you know, the fact that they're a revolving door of musicians and the fact that like Fagan and Becker were like pretty like, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily say that they were like totally reclusive, but they weren't exactly like, you know, um, doing tons of interviews even when they were like they were very 
they didn't want to promote themselves exactly yeah they weren't interested in that type of rock stardom and so i think that there was a way that like for a lot of writers there it was like what do we do with these guys um because like all you're really left with is like just engaging with the music itself on its own terms which is like a difficult thing to do like that's like the big challenge of music writing uh, and why it's easier to write about personalities and write about um yeah like sort of treating um that more sort of literal approach to to artists i think that really helped kind of build the cult around yeah. as well because they they did leave an air of mystery totally around yeah. their sort of you know the first seven album that run then they disappear yeah and it's like there's not much out there in terms of who are donald fagan and walter becker so i think people really had to you know dig into the music and listen to those albums over and over again and and really embrace uh it from that perspective which yeah i mean there is so much to kind of explore even though they didn't really put out that much music like in the grand scheme yeah. of things like compare their output to like a dylan or you know even totally the, yeah. the beatles or something yeah. it's like there's not much there but like every song is so rich and in, in terms of how much you can take from each one um mm-hmm. there's a lot to chew on there yeah yeah one other thing i would say too that is that's interesting and i think that sometimes like it's is like how weird people found it i think in the 70s when steely dan stopped touring you know which happens like <laughs> really really early it's like 74 or something when they basically are like yeah. fuck it we're not gonna go on the road anymore and like that i think for you know obviously the beatles had done that in the 60s uh and even then like it was like people like i like i when i was writing my book i was like reading like a lot like when the beatles announced that they were going off the road like a lot of people reported that story as like the Beatles are breaking up because <laughs> there was like wow. this idea of like, well, what is a, well, like what's a rock band if they're not going to, what's a rock and roll band if they're not going to tour? Like, what are these guys going to do? There wasn't really this idea that you could have at that point that you would have like a purely studio based rock and roll band. And like, that's obviously what the Beatles became and it's what Steely Dan became as well. But like, I think in the seventies, it was almost weirder to do that because the seventies is really the decade that like touring for rock bands becomes a massive business. Like this is like when arena rock is like really invented, you know, kind of on the heels of the big sixties music festivals. And you got like, you know, the stones going around and playing stadiums and Zeppelin flying around on, on a like tricked out private jet. And like this becomes (laughs) sort of like, yeah. And obviously you make a ton of money on the road (laughs) and it's like, this is, yeah. I think for Steely Dan to like, to, to, to consciously be like, we're not doing that um, was, you know, on one hand, like very principled and very much like sticking to themselves. But I think to like a lot of sort of casual music fans made them very weird, like that they would, that they would do that. Um, And like, yeah, there's like, uh, there's a really good, there's a book, there's like an academic book that I um, like a lot. That's called liveness by this performance theorist named uh, Philip Oslander, but he actually has a bit in it. kind of about that about steely dan and about how there were all these rock bands in the 70s who just were like the who who weirdly were kind of like fixated on the fact that steely dan didn't tour and like that was something that was like kind of was like led to the charges of inauthenticity like that it was like they were they were yeah that they were like these guys are like they won't play live like they're like they're hiding behind the studio like they're like just like fake like I don't know. It's we. It's it's weird, but that was like a, definitely a thing. I think for people, which is interesting. Yeah, but then you know, because of that, they were able to focus 100 percent on just making albums and look how good those albums turned out. 
Totally. Yeah. And it's interesting, too, that it's like they're now like like Steely Dan's been on tour for like, like I've seen Steely Dan live like three or four times. Yeah. Uh, and like there's, you know, um, and like really since the, like I guess since they came back in the 90s, they've and particularly in like from the I think probably the first time I saw them live was maybe like the mid 2000s. Um, and they've been like really consistent. I mean, obviously, like with obviously with Becker passing away, it was like that sort of change things a little bit but like there's still i mean obviously don is still out uh doing it um although i guess he had that health scare recently or whatever but i think he's going back on the road right yeah yeah, yeah. he is yeah so it's interesting that it's like they've had this second act as like primarily a touring band that like <laughs> like the, the thing that they refused to do in the 70s and yeah. like have stopped you know what was like uh everything must go was what like 2003 and then they like didn't <laughs> Yeah, it's really weird that like, they then spent like this whole period where they were just touring and not recording. <laughs> they flipped it, yeah. But yeah. because they had all those great songs, they had something. Exactly, to yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah, I mean, some people bring up the fact that Walter passed, you know, it's not really Steely Dan, but like because they've been a touring band for so long and, you know, a lot of the people who have been touring with Steely Dan have been part of Steely Dan for like the 20 years. So I don't totally, know. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And, like the drummer, Keith Carlock, you know, he played on Two Against Nature, Everything Must Go, <laughs> Donald's solo albums, Michael and Carolyn Lenhart, who are um, brother, sister, Michael is uh, a horn player and Carolyn sings backup. Like they joined the Steely Dan touring apparatus in 1996 and they're still with wow. them. So yeah. They've literally been part of like this thing for, you know, for so long. So as much as Steely Dan has ever existed as a band, you know, they're, they're part of it. So totally. Um, yeah. yeah. I, I do. I do get the idea. Like if it's not Walter, it's not Steely Dan, but I, at the same time, I'm sympathetic to the other side of it too, which is just that, you know, in terms of the Steely Dan, as they've been known, you know, over the pa past few decades, um, it's, it's with, it is without Walter, but it's a lot of the same, the same band members. So. Yeah. And I never got the sense that it was like that, like Becker would have felt like particularly strongly about like this ends if I like, you know, that yeah. it's like that it's like I don't think he would have had an issue with like Fagan going out and playing those songs, you know, with like with with other people. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Um, yeah. They've been great think, every time I've seen them. So, yeah. yeah. What do you, uh, any particular memories from a show or? Yeah, actually, <laughs> it's actually pretty funny. Um, so I have so I have a friend who's a, who's also a drummer um, who uh, is who actually I used to play in a band with um, for for many years, who's friends with Keith Carlock, actually. Um, really? And uh, yeah, because he actually worked. My friend also works for Vic Firth, like the drumstick company. And like he knows Keith because Keith is like a in Dorsey. So we actually in Boston, <laughs> like probably back in like 2012, went to um a steely dan show at the i think it was like the wilbur theater in boston maybe um and we got back we had vip passes wow because <laughs> like yeah and so we got to go backstage <laughs> which was like the going backstage to a steely <laughs> dad show in 2012 or whatever it was is like the most subdued like <laughs> it was just sort of like it was like it was like kind of a parody of like like i didn't talk <laughs> i was like too nervous to like go up and but it was like fagan and becker were like both just sort of hanging out there like clearly looking like they sort of just wanted to like get home get back to the hotel like they were like drink they were like drinking bottled water and like 
<laughs> and uh yeah so you so got to like see them funny. you know pretty close yeah i got to I go guess. backstage but it was like you know i think we were totally we were back there for probably a total of like five minutes because we were just like well unless we're they did not seem like they were looking for like a couple of like young guys to come up and like just like <laughs> into them so we were like well we're not gonna um you know uh we're not just gonna like hang out back here just because we can um but yeah so that was pretty but that was like definitely a, a, a funny memory 